text for the sermon this morning continues where our scripture reading left off, Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 19. Verse 19 through verse 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage each other, and all the more, as you see the day approaching. And after the sermon, we'll sing together in response, hymn 42, the stanzas 1 through 6. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, part of living in our fallen condition today is that there are times in our life when we have to really wrestle with doubts when it comes to our faith. There are times in our life when we look at all the rich promises that God has made to us and we struggle to believe that those promises could ever apply to us. We look at ourselves, we look at our sinfulness, our weaknesses, and then we start to think, how could God bless me in such a way? How could those things apply to me? And how dare we come into the presence of holy God as such sinful people? Who do we think we are? That's the mentality we can sometimes have when we look at ourselves. And the truth is, this is not something unique to God's people today. It's something also God's people in the Old Testament had to deal with as well. Hebrews 11 lists all those heroes of faith. And if you look at the accounts of their lives in scripture as well, you'll see they too had times when they struggled to believe that those promises God had made applied to them. When we struggle with doubts in our lives and in our convictions, we're actually in very good company. And the wonderful thing is, our Father in heaven He knows that his people have to deal with such things in their lives. He knows our weaknesses. He knows that we can find it so difficult to believe him. And in his word, he addresses such such situations, one of those times being in our text this morning. And he tells us, we can have full assurance of our faith. We can trust in all those promises that he has made to us. And to really confirm this, he shows us that we need to take the focus away from ourselves, quit looking so much at ourselves, and focus 
on our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. I bring you God's word this morning under this theme, through the sacrifice of our great high priest, we receive full assurance of faith. And we'll look at two things. First, we'll see our basis for this assurance. And secondly, our response to this assurance. Now you'll notice this morning our text began with the word, therefore. What the author is about to say in the words of our text is completely based on everything that he has said in the past chapters. It's part of one larger section in this letter to the Hebrews. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the author has been showing how the priesthood of Christ is superior to the priesthood of Aaron and his descendants. You find that in Hebrews 7. Those offerings that were made by the priests in Israel, they had to be made time and again, year after year, because they could never take away sins. But the sacrifice from Christ was a once-for-all event. There's no longer any need for further sacrifices. And it's important that the author would make that point to the readers of this letter, because these were Jewish Christians. And they were tempted and they were pressured to leave behind those ways of Christendom and return to the old ways of Judaism. And the author showing them there's no point in that because those old sacrifices, they've been done away with. Christ fulfilled them all. And the more immediate context begins in Hebrews 9. From verse 1 of that chapter to verse 18 of chapter 10. The authors focused even more specifically on that sacrifice of Christ and how it fulfilled all the Old Testament offerings. And he's outlined the benefits that God's people receive from that sacrifice. We are heirs of a new and a better covenant. And through the blood of our Savior, all our sins are forgiven and they are remembered no more. That's what we read in verse 17 of Hebrews 10. And so when we come to our text, the author, he takes all that material and he puts a different spin on it. Because those previous chapters, they've outlined the doctrine and now he tells the people what exactly that doctrine means. Because of the suffering and the death of Christ, he says that we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Well, behind that that single statement, there is a lot of Old Testament background that we need to be aware of. The most holy place, also called the Holy of Holies, it was a room in both the tabernacle and the temple. This was the room in which the Ark of God dwelt. And this was a room that no one could enter at any time, with one exception. There was one day a year on which the high priest could enter into the most holy place. And that's the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur on our calendars. But just because that day had come, this didn't mean that the high priest could just enter at will into that most holy place. We read from Leviticus 16 earlier. And from that chapter, it's clear that there were some very specific requirements that he had to go through before he could even think about entering. Before entering, he had to bathe his body in water, put on linen garments. Then he had to make a sin offering of two male goats and a bull, and he had to offer a ram as a burnt offering. 
And there was a point to all these offerings because he was making atonement for the whole people of Israel, but even more specifically, he was making atonement for himself and his household. Because if he didn't do that, failing to make atonement for himself, that meant that he would be entering into the most holy place, entering into the very presence of God, and he'd still be stained with his own sin. And that would mean one thing, and that's death. In order to protect himself, the high priest also had to take a censer of coals from the altar, along with two handfuls of sweet incense, and he had to put that on the fire before the Lord. This would cause a cloud which would cover the mercy seat on the ark of God, protecting him from the holy presence of God. And then some of the blood from the offerings that he had made had to be sprinkled on the mercy seat and on the altar for burnt offerings. And according to some Jewish traditions, when the high priest would go into the most holy place, then he would have some kind of rope or cord tied around his leg so that if he had, if he had forgotten one of those requirements and the Lord struck him down, then the people would be able to pull him out of the most holy place by that cord. The Day of Atonement was a very special day in the history of Israel. But it was also a day filled with fear. There was always that threat hanging above the people that one of God's requirements had not been carried out. And in that case, there would have been death. But when we think about the atonement that Jesus Christ has made for us, we no longer have that sense of fear. Because by his suffering and by his death, Christ has fully appeased the wrath of God so that we can enter into his presence now without that fear of death hanging over us time and again. The sacrifice of Christ, it gives us confidence. And also in that way, we can see how his sacrifice is far better than any of those Old Testament offerings that were made. And we can come into the presence of God but we don't have to go through that long list of requirements anymore. Christ's atonement was full. It was all that was needed. We can enter into the most holy place. But now that most holy place, it's not a room somewhere in one of our churches. It's not a room in a temple in Jerusalem. The most holy place is the very throne of God himself. And through Christ, we can draw near to that throne with all our prayers and with all our petitions. And we can do so having no fear. We can do so with confidence through the blood of Jesus, as our text says. And it's significant here that the text only uses the name Jesus. When you read about the name of our Lord in the New Testament epistles, Often the authors will use titles like the Lord Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. But here it's, it's simply Jesus. And he does this for a very specific reason. We have to keep in mind what exactly the name Jesus means. As the angel tells Joseph in Matthew 121, 
Our Lord had to receive this name because he would save. He would save his people from all their sins. In every way in our text, the author is pointing his readers to that one sacrifice of Christ, to the salvation that Christ has given them. That is the only focus that he has here. And he says that it's through the one who saves his people that we have access into the most holy place. But no longer through dead offerings and strict requirements. Instead, we get to enter through a new and a living way. In the original Greek, this word for new, it's actually a ritual word referring to a newly slain sacrifice. But that way isn't only new. That way is living. We don't offer dead animals anymore. We enter into the presence of God, claiming only one thing, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ who is seated on the throne at God's right hand. And that's the curtain, his body, that we enter, enter through as well. And speaking about the curtain, Hebrews is using more Old Testament language. Perhaps you remember that when the tabernacle was first built, then between the holy place and the most holy place, there was a special curtain that God commanded to be made. You can read about that in Exodus 26, verse 31. And the same thing when the temple was built, that curtain remained. The people had no access to the presence of God. It was blocked off. But when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. God himself removed that item that created separation between him and his people. He took away that old curtain and he replaced it with a new and a better curtain. A curtain that doesn't give separation. A curtain that brought reconciliation. The author continually, in everything he says, time and again, points the people back to that sacrifice on the cross. Because it's only through that sacrifice, it's only through Christ that God's people have the way to the holy of holies. Christ himself taught in John 14 verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's only when we look to Jesus Christ that's the only way we have access to the throne of our Father in heaven. And thinking about coming before the throne of God, that, that can be terrifying. God is seated on his throne in all majesty, in all glory, and we are sinful people. So how do we dare approach God's throne? Well, the text makes it clear. We can do it with confidence. And actually having confidence is one of the major themes that we find in this whole letter to the Hebrews. If you read through the entire letter at some point, you'll find a number of places that mention courage, confidence, or boldness. Just to give one example, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter four. 
Hebrews 4, reading there the verses 14 through 16. There the author, inspired by the Spirit, writes, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And here it comes. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If you look at those verses, you see so much of the same material that we have here in our text. And again, it gives the exact same basis. The reason we can have confidence, the reason we can have any assurance whatsoever is because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. We need to focus on him. We need to focus on his work because he did it for our sake. And yes, congregation, there are times in our life when we examine ourselves. We look at our lives in the mirror of God's holy law. And we wonder, how is it possible that God could ever forgive some of these sins that I commit? We see all those sins, and they're not just one-time things. They're things that we do time and again, day after day. And sometimes it just seems, it seems impossible that God could ever show mercy to us. But when we think on that track, we have our focus in the wrong place. We're so busy looking at ourselves that we forget about what Jesus Christ has done for us. Yes, it's good to be aware of our sins and our sinfulness, but not so that we reach the point of despair. Because instead, when we see all these things, we can't simply dwell on them and fall short of God's grace. We're to lay them before our Father in heaven and ask for forgiveness on the basis of Christ's sacrifice for us. And that forgiveness is something that we can be completely confident about. Because Jesus did not shed his blood for nothing. He did so to pay for the sins of everyone who looks to him in true faith. And not just some of those sins. Every single one of them. By his blood, all our sins are washed away. And that is something that God tells us that we can be completely confident about. For even having ascended into heaven, our Savior has not forgotten about his people. Instead, our text says that he is a great priest over the house of God. When the, when the author here mentions great priest, he's actually using the Hebrew title for the high priest. And as we may know, the high priest, he had a position of great authority and influence in the temple and in the tabernacle. He was in charge of all the worship that took place there. Well, even today, the house of God continues to have a great priest over it. And according to Hebrews 3 verse 6, we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. For yes, congregation, even today, Jesus Christ, he rules over the church of God. He intercedes for every one of God's people day after day. 
and he grants them access to the throne of God. And it's on that basis, the basis of Christ's priestly work, that we can have full confidence. His priestly work is far superior to that of Aaron. His one sacrifice has paid for all our sins. The way to the throne of grace lies open before us when we look in faith to Jesus Christ. And we don't have to fear that we will be struck down because God's own son was struck on our behalf. Through him, we have a wonderful and a rich privilege and position. But with such riches, and with this assurance that we can have, there comes responsibility for us. It demands a response, as we'll see now in our second point. In verses 22 through 25 of our text, we see three very specific exhortations for God's people. They show us the way that we're to respond to this assurance that we have. But as we look at them, we'll also see that they, in fact, give us further assurance of our faith. The first exhortation we find in verse 22 says there, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, or a genuine heart is another way you could say that. And you may think to yourself, well, in a sense, the author is really just repeating what he said in the previous verses. Well, it's true. But having given the basis on which we can draw near, that exhortation becomes so much more powerful. And he also gives us here the criteria for drawing near. If we are to come before God's throne, our hearts have to be in the right place. And so our text is doing two things here. It comforts us and it says, yes, you can draw near. You must do so. But it also warns us, when you draw near, make sure that your heart is in the right place. And to further explain what he means here, the author says that we are to draw near, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us with a guilty conscience. And the first thing we have to ask is how can we do that? How can we sprinkle our hearts? Well, if you think about it, it's clear that we can't do it. We can't somehow open up our bodies and sprinkle our hearts, and there's no way we can cleanse ourselves. It's clear this is something that God has to do for us. And it's something that he's promised to do for us. Ezekiel 36 verse 25 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities. God promises his people that he will sprinkle them with water so that before him they are completely clean. Again, what we see is that it's God who takes the initiative. It's all the result of what God does for his people. And there's more Old Testament background that we have to be aware of here. At Mount Sinai, when God made his covenant with the people of Israel, 
then they had to be cleansed and they had to receive confirmation that they were indeed the covenant people of God. And at the time, this was done with the blood of bulls, which was sprinkled on them. We read that in Exodus 24, verses five through eight. Blood of bulls, sprinkled. That's how the people were confirmed as the covenant people. Well, we don't sprinkle blood on people today. But we can have that same confirmation that we are indeed the covenant people of God. Not because we've been sprinkled with blood, but because we've been washed with water, water that symbolizes blood. According to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 26, when we were baptized, then that water symbolized the washing away of our sins by the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And being washed in the Spirit means that we are sanctified to be members of Christ. And what that means is that your baptism is a sure sign and pledge that you are a covenant child of the Lord. He is the one who claimed you. He is the one who is with you. And he is the one who says in Philippians 1 verse 6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. If we look to Jesus Christ in faith, then we can be fully assured that our God and our Father will never leave us. And if you ever need confirmation of this, remember that you were baptized because your baptism is a seal of God's promises to you. That's the exhortation to draw near to God, but that's also the assurance. You are his child. He has claimed you as his own. You can have confidence about it. And then the second exhortation is given in verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And at the time this letter was written, this was such an urgent thing for the author to say. For the people at that time were being pressed to return to those old ways of Judaism. But at the time, they were also being persecuted by their leaders. They faced public scorn. They faced imprisonment. They faced the confiscation of their property. You can read that in, later on in Hebrews 10. In every aspect of their life, these were people who were under pressure and who were persecuted. And so the author tells them, hold unswervingly to the hope that you profess. Don't give it up. But it's not only these people who are persecuted. It's something that's happened over the whole of history. God's children are persecuted for their faith. And when we look here in Canada, we may say, well, we're not persecuted in the same way they are. And that's true. We aren't being thrown into prison yet just because we believe in Christ. And who knows how long we will have this freedom yet. But we certainly do face challenges to our faith. If you look at Canada, it used to be a Christian nation. But now so many people in our own country have left the faith. And now they say there is no God. And when you talk to these people, they say that now that they've gotten rid of faith, they finally feel free. 
They say that they're free from all those rules and regulations that Christianity put on them. They're free to enjoy their lives as they finally want. And those temptations of the world can be very attractive, also for God's people today. And since our human nature is weak and sinful, we should never underestimate the pull of these temptations. But we also have to recognize that these things will never bring freedom. All these things, what they do is they take away freedom and they make us slaves once again. Slaves of sin sin, and slaves of Satan. And it's a terrifying thought that we have to face all those things because we know that of ourselves, we don't have the strength to fight against them. Well, our text actually helps us with this because it tells us even in these things, even in all these trials and temptations, don't look at yourself. Hold fast your confession, it says, for he who promised is faithful. Even when all the pleasures and desires of this world seem so attractive, so rich, think about what God has promised to you and trust that he is the one who will carry out his promises. All these pleasures, these so-called desires of this world, they're temporary. And they don't fill you with anything good. They give you temporary joy, but all they do in the end is they leave you empty, craving more, wanting fullness in some other way. But if we hold fast to the promises of God, then we can rely on his faithfulness, knowing that he will carry out his promises in our lives and he will give us the reward that he has promised to us. It's his faithfulness that we can rely on and not our own feelings. And then the final exhortation of our text begins in verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. The word that's used here for spurring on, it's a very strong word, usually refers to sharp disagreements. In Acts 15 verse 39, we read that there was a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And it's that same word that's used here, actually. Throughout the entire New Testament, whenever that word is used, it usually has a very negative sense about driving someone to the point of irritation. Well, in our text, we're called to provoke each other, but not to the point of irritation. Instead, our text calls us to provoke each other to love and good deeds. It means that we need to be holding each other accountable encouraging one another to use our gifts in service to the Lord and his people. But it all has to be done in the right spirit, a spirit of love and humility. And to encourage one another, the author says that the people are not to give up meeting together. We get the sense from our text that at this time, there were some people who were withdrawing from the body of Christ. They were content to try and live their lives as Christians apart from the church. But brothers and sisters, it's very difficult to encourage one another from a distance. God's people have the calling to gather together for worship, 
to meet together as the communion of saints and to build each other up. And yes, in our world today, we can communicate at massive distances. We have our phones, we have our email, social media, Facebook and Twitter, all those things. But even at those great distances, none of them can actually replace the encouragement that we get when we meet together as God's people for worship. In Belgian Confession, Article 28, we confess that everyone has the duty to join the church. And that article is speaking about the local church, actually. And it uses some very strong language. We read in our confession that there is no salvation outside of the church, and because of that, no one ought to be content by himself. We are called to be a part of God's covenant people and God's congregation. And one of the reasons that the article actually gives for this is for the edification of our brothers and sisters. We all know that in our life, we have the responsibility to serve the Lord. But we also have a responsibility toward our fellow believers. It's a very heavy responsibility, but it's not one that we get to choose whether we carry out or not. It's something that God calls us to. And it's actually another way that the Lord gives us assurance of our faith. Because as we go through life, we don't have to do so individually. He puts us in a body of believers so that we can be a help and a support to one another. Well, part of our rich Reformed heritage is that we gather together twice every Sunday for worship. And over time, what can happen is that we don't really think about why we do it. We just do it out of custom. But our text shows us that there's actually a certain urgency that goes together with meeting for worship. It says that we are to do these things all the more as you see the day drawing near. And here we have a reference to that great day on which Jesus Christ will make his return. Well, then the question we have to ask is, how do we know that the day of our Lord Jesus Christ is coming near? Yes, our Lord has given us signs to mark the end of times. But he's also said that he is going to return like a thief in the night. So how do we know that it's coming close? Well, we may not know when exactly our Lord will return. But we do know this. Every day, every hour, in fact, every minute, brings us that much closer to the return of Jesus Christ. We don't often think about it, but it could very well be that our Lord returns this afternoon, tomorrow, maybe later this week. The reality is we don't know, but we need to be ready for it. And that ought to give our life a sense of urgency. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 13, and do this, understanding the present time, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Meeting together for worship spurring each other on towards love and good deeds. It's not something that we can just simply put on our to-do list for some time later in the future. It's something that requires immediate attention. Jesus Christ will return soon. But until that day does come, 
Brothers and sisters, the Lord shows us in his word that we can be fully assured and confident of our rich and wonderful position before him. We belong to our faithful savior and with his blood, he has fully paid for each and every one of our sins and he set us free from the power of the devil. We confess that beautiful truth in Lord's day one. All our assurance and every bit of confidence that we can have in this life rests on the fact that everyone who looks to Christ in faith can say, I belong to Jesus Christ. He has paid for all my sins. And then through his spirit, he also assures us of these things. He makes us ready and he makes us willing from now on to live for him, to respond to that rich position he has given to us. And so congregation, let us trust in that work that Jesus Christ has done for us. And let us approach the throne of grace. Let us boldly seek God's face there to find mercy, help, and grace. Amen.